sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, holographic surgery and 3D printers in surgery. It's not just science fiction anymore. Then, the fascinating history of how we learned to appreciate sleep. But first, imagine a world where surgeons don't just navigate the complexities of the human brain with skill, but where they wield holographic models and custom-crafted 3D-printed implants to redefine precision and personalization in every procedure. That world is now a reality. Today we embark on a journey into the mesmerizing intersection of medical innovation and technological prowess. Joining us is Dr. Bernard Bendock. He's a trailblazing neurosurgeon at the forefront of revolutionizing the landscape of neurosurgery through the ingenious integration of holographic imaging and 3D printing. Dr. Bendock is here to unravel the mysteries behind these cutting-edge advancements, sharing insights into the transformative impact on patient outcomes, the evolution of surgical strategies, and the thrilling possibilities that lie ahead. So if you're like me, prepare to be captivated by the marriage of medical expertise and technological wizardry as we delve into the extraordinary realm of holographic surgery and 3D printing in neurosurgery. With our esteemed guest joining us from Phoenix is Dr. Bernard Bendock. He is a professor and chair of neurological surgery, otolaryngology, and radiology at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Dr. Bendock, welcome to our program. Dr. Servan, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We're so excited to have you and talk about this. Um, let's just get started. Um, Dr. Bendick, you are a neurosurgeon, uh, but for our guests and our listeners, could you share with us um, a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this area of holographic surgery, 3D printing? Tell us a little bit about what you do and how this kind of folded into it. Right. Well, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so, Dr. Servin, you know, um, my, my passion is in helping people with anatomic problems that affect the brain. As you know, the brain is the most magnificent computer in the universe that we're aware of to date. Uh, but this computer, this amazing structure who that defines who we are, our lives, our dreams, our aspirations, our emotions, our sadness, our happiness, et cetera, um, can be threatened by diseases, including tumors and vascular problems that can cause stroke and uh, compress on the brain. So it's often my job to do surgery to help with those situations. How did you get into the area of 
the the imaging the this holographic uh, part because it's so fascinating. Uh, was that something presented to you? Did did you see it as something that you felt you know this is something we need? How, how did you kind of get into that part? Well, you know, if you think about you know learning neurosurgery, as you can imagine, is quite hard. You know, you're basically learning to do very complicated three dimensional things um, that take a long time to learn. Uh, navigating the anatomy can be challenging. We're often working in tight corridors. Um, and if you if you take a step back and go back to the beginning of surgery at the turn of the last century, neurosurgeons often would tackle problems based on the input of very smart neurologists who would tell them, would tell the neurosurgeon, I think there's a problem in that part of the brain. And based on how the patient is behaving, I think it's this and that. And so a surgery would be done based on a good guess, based, you know, which was the best you could do at the time. In the 1960s and 70s, imaging came along, CAT scan and later MRI. We started to have maps that could make the, the surgery easier, more precise, more predictable. We knew what we were getting into, but even then this was two-dimensional data that you would have to study the MRI. And then when you're in surgery, you would have to superimpose that on, uh, on the field. Uh, and, and that's not an easy thing to do because things at surgery don't look like they do on an MRI. And so as, and as uh, technologies have evolved and now we have something called neuronavigation, which is a GPS essentially of navigating the brain. So we right. can take an instrument and put it on the brain and we know where we are based, based on in, when looking at a scan. So the natural evolution from that is could we superimpose the imaging onto our field so that we can blend the digital patient, basically think of it as creating an avatar of the patient and their problem, and then blending it with the patient so that we can navigate in three dimensions with the assistance. It's much like a pilot landing a plane and sure. seeing a digital version of the runway superimposed. So even if there are clouds, they can still see the runway because there's a digital version of space and the runway to make the landing very accurate. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm curious, there's a lot of equipment in the OR. Do you have to be wearing special uh, equipment or th 3D goggles for this? Or is this something that everyone can see that's in the room with you? Well, you know, we do have monitors where everyone can see in two dimensions what we're doing. Uh, you can put on special goggles to see it in 3D. But for the neurosurgeon, you can integrate this digital data into your microscope, which is how we do most of our work. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're not using the microscope, you can wear special goggles that bring the best of your imaging. What you've selected from the imaging is important to you onto the field. So whether it's a quote-unquote digital runway or an important landmark so that the digital information from the patient becomes part of your surgery, not just what you see with your naked eyes. Understood. I want just want you to talk us through like a, a, a case study or success where these techniques, they played a crucial role in achieving a good outcome for one of your patients. Yes, you know, so these digital technologies are not totally new. We, you know, as you know, with gaming, people have been using uh, virtual reality for a number of years and augmented reality. You may recall the video game, uh, there was a video game where you could superimpose the field. Um, the video game, your outside world became the video game. Yes, yeah. And, uh, uh, but, the key advance for us is when we started to be able to integrate these tools into the tools we already use. So we use navigation, which is our form of GPS for navigating during surgery. And companies have come along that have, and engineers have helped us to develop ways of integrating this digital data into the navigation systems that we already use. Uh, and so that has really helped us advance in, in the right direction. What type of uh, patient then have you seen where this is a huge 
benefit. Could could you kind of guide us uh, yeah. without giving too much away on privacy and stuff? Right. So so uh, we had a young uh, high school student who came to the ER with a tumor that was in a very difficult part of the brain, part of the brain where you're usually told, and what we, we've been taught is inoperable. Right. He was in the ER after a seizure, and this tumor was in the part of the brain that controls the opposite side of the body. Ugh. And I walked into the ER after being consulted, and the family, the mother and father and the patient were essentially in tears, thinking they had a death sentence, an incurable brain tumor. And in looking at the imaging, reconstructing the data and the maps of the brain with three dimensions and three dimensions, we were able to map out a strategy to remove the tumor using the best of brain mapping techniques, awake surgery, virtual and augmented reality. And where that technology really came in very usefully is, is that some brain tumors look exactly like the brain. So when you're working in a very difficult location, and a tumor looks just like the normal brain, right. it can be very unnerving. But when you're able to superimpose the MRI onto the patient very precisely, you can have greater assurance that you're being very, very precise in what you're doing in terms of removing the tumor but not normal brain tissue. Uh, the patient underwent the surgery using augmented and virtual reality as an aid to the surgery. We got a complete tumor resection He's now seizure-free and is able to pursue his dreams uh, of becoming a Marine, which is what he was afraid he couldn't do because of the seizure that he had had and the inoperable brain tumor. Wow. So that was, that was one case that really sold me on the concept, and we've been trying to expand it to many other patients. That is amazing. Let me, let me ask about uh, another technology that comes up a lot, and that's 3D printing. Um, how does... 3D printing contribute to helping patients out in neurosurgery and improving surgical outcomes? As we look at all these 3D technologies, whether it's virtual or physical print, and we, I look at it as both part of a continuum, Okay. what we have found is um, that patients in clinic have less fear of what they're going to need done. You know, I had a patient once with a vascular tumor of her temporal lobe that's part of the brain uh, just you know deep to the ear in front of the ear uh, that can control memory and music and other important functions of cognition and she was on multiple seizure medications and just could not pass the graduate school exam to, to pursue her dream of getting uh, a graduate degree mm -hmm. And she was terrified of having the surgery. So we brought her to clinic and showed, had, had her hold a 3D print of her brain and the pathology. And then we had her walk through a hologram of the temporal lobe and the tumor. And she said, I'm going to do it. She signed up for after years of wow. saying no. And we removed what turned out to be a vascular tumor, cavernoma, as it's called. And we were able to get her off senior medications. She went on to take the GRE and passed it with a 90 percentile score, went to graduate school, was able to pursue her dreams. It was that fear of the surgery that, you know, we, we take it for granted sometimes in healthcare that, and we're all pressed for time, that if we explain something verbally, the patients are going to get it. But sometimes we create more fear than education, even though we intend education. But if they're able to really, um, experience what their pathology looks like in 3D and then walk them through the surgery digitally. Uh, they have much less fear, maybe more buy-in into the concept of surgery. Their whole family is able to share in that. And I think that's been a wonderful addition to our experience with patients in clinic. And we bring that same concept to a tumor board or an epilepsy board, a seizure, you know, epilepsy board. We bring that same concept to the OR, so the whole OR team is more engaged. And and then we finally merge that avatar with the patient to enhance the surgery. And even before we get there, we can rehearse the surgery, starting with the patient, but then on our own with our students and residents and the whole team, so that we can accelerate learning curves for everyone. So rather than having to 
experience one engine down on the airplane for the first time in flight, you've right. practiced it on a simulator hundreds of times. So when it does happen, hopefully it never happens, but if it does happen, you are well, you've developed that instinct for how to react. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, walking people through a dry run of their surgery in a virtual reality world. And to all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about holographic surgery in neurosurgery and 3D printing. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Dr. Bendock, I, I'm, I'm so impressed with all of this. I, I have to ask the flip side of the question. Are there challenges or limitations associated with these technologies and approaches? And, and, and how do you get around that? You know, um, my hope and dream, you know, when 3D printing started, it was very expensive. And you could do it. You'd have to pick, you know, one, a couple cases a year to do it on. Now, 3D printing has got, gotten to be less expensive. The virtual technologies are coming down in price and so that we can um, democratize this technology and make it available to the largest number of patients possible. I think technology is making that possible. Um, you know, the challenges are sometimes the cost, the time, but as we start getting into artificial intelligence approaches, helping us with the processing of the data and the um, and the, the selection of what's most relevant about the data for our plans and surgery, I think that uh, we're going to be able to use this more commonly on more individuals with less cost and less time. I'm, I'm wondering, and, and you've kind of touched on this, but one of the questions that I know would come up is cost effectiveness. Does this, does this I mean, at, at the end, it would strike me because of the safety part that this pays for itself, but correct me if I'm wrong in that interpretation. No, I, I think you're correct. If we use it correctly, and and we need to we need to all work together to keep improving the technology, to make it seamless, easy, push button accessible. But you can imagine a future world five to ten years from now where a patient could be sitting at home and sitting in a virtual environment with their doctor or surgeon, looking at their pathology, understanding it in 3D, rehearsing the surgery right there in front of the patient, so to speak, walking them through it digitally. And then you can imagine a world where a student who's studying how to do the surgery, she may be able to access a virtual platform where she can select from a number of surgical options and rehearse those options with feedback from the computer system, the artificial intelligence system, and as to how to improve, what needs to be rehearsed further, what could be done better. And you can imagine a future where uh, an artificial intelligence system is assisting digitally during the surgery to serve as almost like an assistant to the surgeon. And then so that you create a circle of constant learning, constant feedback, constant refinement that will ultimately benefit the greatest number of patients possible. Understood. One of the big buzzwords everywhere, whether medicine or in life in general, is AI and artificial intelligence. How does how do you foresee AI playing into this area of holograms, 3D printing in neurosurgery? What what role, if any, may it have? So uh, today, uh, there is one of the reasons why this remain there remains a cost associated with this approach is that you do need um, you need individuals on the ground helping process the data to select from the vast amounts of data that is available on imaging what is relevant for a surgery. So that's what we call segmentation. And so it's, it's a bit labor intensive. I envision a future where those tasks can be done, can be automated. 
you know, when we hear artificial intelligence, sometimes a natural reaction is fear from some yes. of the negative. Yes. But the positive side is automation, which is one of the byproducts of artificial intelligence, will be to free doctors to be doctors and free doctors and patients to spend more quality time together by alleviating some of the work that has to go on behind the scenes, reduce the cost, and make it more easily available and, and, and uh, easier to interact with. So I envision that artificial intelligence will process the data much more seamlessly and allow doctors to use this more globally, uh, even in poor resource areas. So that's what I'm excited about. I think AI will extend this technology far greater than we can currently without automation. Let me ask uh, and uh, kind of a, a question on the on the flip side again. Um, are there any ethical considerations that we need to consider? And when I mean ethical, when it comes to this, we're talking about patient privacy and data security as it, I mean, now creating 3D images of, of someone's brain, it's like, I can't imagine anything more personal in a, in a way. Um, what right. about that part? Well, certainly like anything else related to a patient, this, this should be considered as, uh, this must fall under the HIPAA compliant approach of protecting their privacy. And, and I think this is a natural extension of imaging uh, on the patient. And, you know, there was a time where we feared that making the images digital would be less secure, but it turned out that it was probably more secure than images lying around in a physical format. And, and uh, so, as I understand it in the privacy world, it's a, it's a war between uh, the hackers and the, and the good people who are building ways to protect digital data. And I think uh, we have to keep this data all behind very secure firewalls that uh, protect patient privacy and the integrity of the medical record. And so that would fall under all other information related to the patient. But if you think about it, we have an enormous opportunity as imaging goes from just structural imaging to metabolic and molecular imaging uh, and how we're going to be able to integrate that data into patient care. Uh, the, the promise of digital integration is enormous. And I think it's going to ultimately benefit a greater number of patients than we ever imagined. Um, I think these technologies are going to allow us to scale healthcare in ways that were not possible uh, e even today or historically. That's amazing. Is there any ongoing or upcoming clinical trials or research studies that you can discuss that focus on, on kind of looking at the safety and usefulness of these techniques you're talking about in neurosurgery. Are there a lot of those trials or any that you can talk about? Oh, sure, for, for sure. You know, I think uh, in all domains of neurosurgery, we, we're, uh, our program, for example, is very active in trying to develop augmented reality for spine surgery. And what this does, think of augmented reality, these, these virtual technologies allowing you to have laser uh, x-ray vision. And so, one of the reasons sometimes people get bigger incisions is because you have to be able to see, you have to get light in there. But what if you didn't need as much light or, or no light at all, but you could actually see through the skin? You may need a smaller incision. So surgery is becoming less invasive, wow. more, uh, less injurious to the patient. And, and so there's a lot of work going on in that domain. Uh, and, and I think the other, a lot of the research right now is on the artificial intelligence and engineering side with the goal of making it easier, more easily accessible, less costly, and more uh, user-friendly uh, so that we can scale some of these concepts. So it's not just available at top medical centers, but again, uh, available to patients in resource-limited environments. And that's what I'm excited about. Well, as we uh, we only have a, a moment left, uh, Dr. Bendak, as technology continues to advance, um, how do you envision the training and education of future neurosurgeons? I mean, you all spend seven to 10 years post-medical school in training just to do your work. Um, how right. do you envision that, that training and education to look like 
given these tools? My thought on that is that if you look at people who have excelled in life, uh, whether it's in sports or music or anything that requires integrating cognitive and you know manual dexterity, it often revolves around how early they started. You look at Mozart, his parents put musical instruments in his hands as a toddler, and, uh, and his parents were musicians. Uh, and uh, same, you see the same thing happening in sports where uh, a baseball or basketball player started at a very, very young age with, with, a, you know, with a good mentor, and, uh, be it a parent or otherwise. And I think with these digital technologies in neurosurgery, we're going to be able to have individuals start at a much younger age, rehearsing and learning complex maneuvers. Historically, it was often, it took many years before you could do the very complicated things in neurosurgery because you have to watch for a long time and the learning curves are very steep. Those learning curves are being flattened by these technologies so that even a first year trainee can start to rehearse very complicated maneuvers because you're not going to kill the digital model. Wow. You can rehearse and become safer uh, much like a pilot can practice on a simulator, and, and by the time they get to the real airplane, they already have, quote-unquote, a tremendous amount of experience. I'm going to let that be our last word because that is such a fantastic, hopeful note and hopeful tone. Dr. Bendick, I want to thank you so much for giving us uh, your time. I know is so important, so busy right now. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom and advice with us. Thank you for the honor, Dr. Serban. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Bernard Bendock. He is a professor and chair of neurological surgery, otolaryngology, and radiology at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. He's a practicing neurosurgeon. And he's been talking with us about these incredibly innovative concepts of holographic surgery and 3D printing. Up next, a look at the pioneers that helped us understand our sleep. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is what's health got to do with it. Now let's transition into another facet of our well-being as we journey through the science of slumber. Our next guest is a captivating author unraveling the tales of scientific pioneers in the realm of sleep. One of the great mysteries of the mind and brain health are the wonders of a good night's rest. Today we're delving into the captivating world of sleep science with author Kenneth Miller and his new book, Mapping the Darkness, the visionary scientist who unlocked the mysteries of sleep. Now, this book is a fascinating intersection of sleep, brain health, and the intriguing stories of those who navigated the invisible continent of slumber. Mr. Miller joins us now from his home in Los Angeles. Ken, welcome to our program. Well, thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on a terrific new book as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. I'm curious. I know you are not a sleep specialist, but what was the inspiration behind writing Mapping the Darkness, uh, given that oftentimes people don't really talk about the pioneers of sleep medicine? Well, this book grew out of an assignment for Discover Magazine on the, the latest breakthroughs in sleep science. And reporting that story awakened me to something I found really fascinating, which is you know, sleep's central role in regulating our physical, cognitive, and emotional health. By coincidence, right around that time, everybody in my family, including myself, started experiencing various kinds of sleep problems. Really? Uh, and 
yeah, you know, ranging from snoring to just not getting enough of it. I'm a freelance writer and I was, I thought I could get by on six hours a night. <laughs> Turned out to be deeply wrong. Uh, but shortly after the articles published, my father, who was 87 years old, fell asleep at the wheel of his car oh. and crashed into a tree. Oh my God. Um, Is he okay? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he survived. He broke nine ribs, uh, got really banged up, but uh, you know, that incident really drove home to me the fact that sooner or later, sleep trouble, like serious sleep trouble, really touches us all. And so I had become sort of obsessed with sleep science by then. And while I was reporting that, I also realized, as I learned a little bit about the history, uh, how far sleep science had traveled since the 1920s, when this physiologist named Nathaniel Clayton began transforming it into a, an independent discipline. So, you know, I found out just in my initial reporting that a, a century ago, there was no such thing as a full-time sleep scientist. Uh, you know, lots of experts saw sleep as a wasteful habit that yeah. we could learn to overcome. Oh. You know, only a handful of, of sleep disorders had been identified. Nobody uh, had, yeah, sorry. What what a difference a little bit of time makes now that we're in a very different understanding. Your narrative um, highlights the rise and fall of Project Sleep in 1979. And uh, yeah. what, what was that? And, and how did the abrupt end of funding it impact the whole field? Well, so Project Sleep was really the first example of a government program aimed at solving the, the global sleep crisis or the American sleep crisis, which had been really emerging since the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, since the late 19th century, with the advent of the electric light, uh, the electric light bulb that allowed us to become a 24-hour society. And insomnia had been coming a, a, a growing problem. Millions of people were taking sleeping pills every night, which could lead to all sorts of other health troubles. Uh, the field of sleep medicine was just starting to take off. And researchers were beginning to see a link between sleep problems and daytime sleepiness, which could lead to things like car crashes and industrial accidents, problems that affected society as a whole. So in 1979, the U.S. Institute of Medicine published this massive report on sleeping pill use, which was really the first publication to alert legislators to these growing problems. Uh, and in response, the Surgeon General launched Project Sleep which was designed to promote a wide range of research uh, and the development of new treatments for sleep disorders. But unfortunately, when President Reagan took office about a year later, he eliminated funding for the program. Really? It was a huge, disappoint it was a huge disappointment for, for sleep researchers and sleep physicians. And it led scientists like William DeMent to really intensify their efforts to get Americans to recognize sleep as a public health issue and after about a decade of lobbying and organizing, they got Congress to establish a National Center for Sleep Disorders Research at the NIH, which dramatically improved funding for sleep science and led to a lot of the breakthroughs that we're seeing today. Uh, there are so many challenges that you outline, and these were obscure sleep scientists. And I would argue, I suspect outside the world of sleep, they're pretty obscure to the general public. Was there anything that was common uh, amongst the big personalities and pioneers you write about, uh, Kleitman, Asarinsky, Dement, and Karskaden? Uh, was there anything unusual? Yeah, I mean, these were all really, they all started out as outsiders. So Nathaniel Kleitman was a refugee from Tsarist Russia. He, had, uh, he was Jewish, he had survived two pogroms back home, uh, fled first to Lebanon where he went to medical school and was taken prisoner of war during World War I, then escaped to the United States. And when he got to the United States in the 1920s, there was widespread anti-Semitism, not only just in society in general, but also in academia. Uh, so he was trying to make his way forward and Jewish scientists were not allowed to, they were not welcome in many established fields. And he thought to himself, what am I, what can I do that's new that, that, you know, that I can pioneer in? And he saw that sleep was really, really interesting and very few people were doing it and nobody was doing it full time. So that really led him to become the first 
full-time sleep researcher. And for about 30 years, he was the only full-time sleep researcher in the world. And people looked at him really as scans, you know, wow. um, but he managed to, to, to launch this new science, this new science. So, you know, this all came from his being an outsider, but his student, Eugene Asarinsky, who discovered REM sleep, which transformed our ideas about the sleeping brain, you know, that the sleeping brain was as, as, as active as the, as, as the waking brain. Asterinsky was another outsider. His father was a struggling immigrant dentist in Brooklyn who had a nightly card game that he would enlist Asterinsky for. Asterinsky grew up sort of with a chip on his shoulder as a poor kid who had a bad relationship with his father. And this helped drive him to be the kind of guy who when Kleitman said, hey, look at people's eyes while they're asleep and see what you come up with. He spent years just staring at their at their eyeballs and measuring the movements of their eyeballs and their brain waves and discover something entirely new because he came at it from an outsider's perspective. William DeMent was a guy who, before he became a scientist, had thought he might be uh, a journalist and they thought he wanted to be a psychoanalyst. He played jazz bass. He was kind of a bohemian. He had original ideas, you know. Um, he became Nathaniel Kleitman's other famous student. And, uh, you know, again, when he started out, there were very, very few people doing that. I mean, Clayton was still the only full-time sleep researcher. Demet pretty much became the second one because he was the kind of guy who was like, all right, I'll just be, I'll go into this completely unestablished field and see if I can do something new in it. And his student, Mary Carskadden, who's the fourth protagonist of the book, was, uh, was a woman, you know, at, at a time when there were very few scientists of any kind who were, who were female. Uh, she sort of stumbled into this, went to work as Dement's lab assistant. Dement recognized that she was brilliant and extremely talented and started ha having her lead experiments, suggested she go to grad school. And as a, while she was still a PhD student, she discovered that teenagers have special sleep needs, uh, she discovered a way to, to measure drowsiness in a quantifiable way. And again, she was somebody who was coming in from outside, not constrained by preconceived notions, and really had the courage and the originality to do something completely new. It's almost like a mod squad when you describe all of those folks uh, <laughs> yes. just in their personalities. What, what are the Absolutely. big things that they found that you talk a lot about in the book is, is REM sleep? Or and yeah. its discovery and its link to dreaming. Uh, can you talk about why is that so significant? I mean, I could tell you from a neurologist uh, in general, but but what did you find that makes that so pivotal in terms of a discovery? Well, so Eugene Asarinsky discovered REM sleep in 1953. Uh, before that. The main idea about what caused dreaming was that the, the brain pretty much shut down during the night. It was in a it was in a dormant state. And so when you had dreams, it was probably sensations that you were having that the brain was misinterpreting and sort of inventing a story around because it had nothing else to do. Um, and so it wasn't all that interesting, except for to like psychoanalysts who thought that it had all sorts of narrative meaning. Uh, so Asarinsky sort of accidentally discovered when he was measuring eye movements during sleep, first of all, he noticed that there were these violent jerky eye movements that were happening periodically throughout the night. And he also noticed that at the same time, the brain but was showing uh, brainwave patterns that were very similar to what you see when people were awake. And he thought, what is going on here? And why is this happening? It, you know, clearly the brain is doing this for a reason. Otherwise, why would this happen several times a night? And the brain is not shut down. It's actually as alert in a different kind of way during, during sleep as it is during waking. What's that all about? Asterinsky published his paper, didn't make much of an impression. He quit the, the field immediately afterwards because he didn't get along with Kleitman. William DeMent, who was interested in Freudian psychoanalysis uh, analysis, saw this and said, hey, wait a minute, maybe this can uh, illuminate you know, what Freud was talking about is dreams are maybe a way to keep us from going crazy because it's a safety valve for our, our hidden desires. And so he picked up where Asterinsky had left off and he found that REM sleep happens like on a regular basis every 90 minutes and it follows certain patterns. He said, 
this must be absolutely necessary for the brain in some way, but why? And when he started publishing these papers, it got a lot of other scientists interested in sleep for the first time. And suddenly all these folks who were interested in psychology, who were interested in the way the brain works, realized that sleep was a really, really fascinating subject. And one of the most important things that this discovery of REM did was to just get this surge of interest in the field. And it led eventually to things like, you know, the fact that we all wear CPAP uh, yeah, machines, yeah. <laughs> which were developed, you know, because people could measure these brain waves and see what was happening in REM sleep and the other sleep stages and so forth. And there were enough scientists interested in sleep that they actually put their minds together to figure out all these other problems. One of the things that I've noticed uh, when it comes to sleep is where it touches public policy. Um, daylight savings time uh, uh you talked about your father and 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 being tired and, and at the wheel um you know it, there's a lot of connections to public policy and sleep and your book really underscores that impact um what do you think how how would you say sleep disorders have impacted policy changes and awareness initiatives as a result? Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, as early as 1979 with this project Sleep, there was a growing uh, awareness that sleep could be a, a, a public health problem. But what really kicked it off, I think, was the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger in 1986. Um, because it was when the commission investigated the causes of that disaster, they found out that a big problem was that the NASA engineers in charge of the launch had not gotten enough sleep in the previous two nights. They'd gotten just a few hours of sleep. They were exhausted, sleep deprived, spaced out. And when it came time to decide whether to launch that morning, uh, even though the weather was not conducive to launching, they said, oh, to hell with it. Let's just go ahead. And uh, the result was seven astronauts were killed, this huge multi-million dollar disaster seen by millions of people on TV. And that allowed sleep scientists, especially William DeMet, who'd been leading this charge, to finally be able to go to Congress and say, hey, look, we've got a problem. Uh, Congress started a National Commission for Sleep Disorders Research, which DeMet led, and that commission investigated and found that you know, millions of Americans were having sleep disorders, were sleep deprived for various reasons. It was related to car crashes, industrial accidents, uh, all kinds of problems like that. And that led Congress in 1993 to establish this National Center for Sleep Disorders Research. Since that time, funding for sleep research has multiplied several times. I mean, it's, it's I don't know how, how many times more, but it's, it's ballooned. And along with that, the ambition of sleep research. And so now they're looking into uh, shift work. They're looking into how sleep affects children and school start times. And so it's really become something that affects us, uh, you know, uh, that government is interested in, and also that increasingly every American adult really, you know, understands that that they need to focus on sleep, uh, and and every day more research is coming out showing how important that is. You know, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the role of sleep problems with the Challenger accident. Uh, I have to admit that was one of those areas when I was reading it. I was like, this is wow! I di I didn't realize that. Is there a reason why it um it just doesn't get that? That piece hasn't gotten enough coverage, or is it just, um, it, it's, it's just perhaps we just avoid it uh, in some way or another? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think what it is is that sleep science, like many other kinds of science, is focused on what's happening now and what are we going to do next. Um, and, you know, when you read about it in the newspapers, that's what you find out about. But, you know, before I wrote this book, there had been one book on the history of sleep science. Uh, and it was a wonderful, very comprehensive book, but really for academics only, very, very theoretical, very dense. Um, and that author, a guy named Kenton Croker, mentioned the, sh the shuttle disaster as a pivotal event. Um, and the more I looked into that, I thought, this guy is absolutely right, um, because this was a way, this really crystallized this problem. You know, the 
one of the reasons that we have this epidemic of, of sleep trouble is because of the advances of industrial society, which has brought us all sorts of health improvements, all sorts of improvements in our general way of life, but it's also taken a toll on our on our ability to sleep because our rhythms are, you know, our, our design have been designed by evolution to follow the 24 hour cycle of uh, sunrise and sunset and all that stuff. Uh, and now that's, we've been separated from that. And so the, the shuttle disaster showed that the same progress that it allowed us to get to the point where we could have a space shuttle was also interfering with our sleep in a way that threatened the progress that had been made. Uh, and so it became clear that in order to continue making progress, we were going to have to do something about sleep. But that's something that you would only focus on if you were writing a book on the history of sleep science. Uh, you know, it's just something that would not occur to people in sort of ordinary day-to-day -day thinking. What do you think, uh, as you did the research for this book, was the fact or finding that stood out to you as particularly fascinating uh, that our listeners would really appreciate? Uh, you know, I, to me, there were three transformative mo moments in the history of sleep science that really struck me. The first was, was Asterinsky's discovery of REM sleep. You know, up until that point, just the brain during sleep didn't look very interesting. Suddenly we realized it was extremely interesting. The second transformative moment was when sleep science and the broader study of biological rhythms, which we now call the field of chronobiology, right. found each other. You know, for decades, scientists who were focused on sleep didn't interact much with scientists who were focused on the workings of biological clocks. And in part, that was because Nathaniel Kleitman, the founder of modern sleep science, didn't believe in biological clocks, or at least not in humans. You know, he thought that the rhythms of sleep in people came from our conscious decisions, the habits that grew out of them, you know, rather than from some kind of internal clockwork. But meanwhile, scientists who studied biological rhythms in plants and animals were finding evidence of biological clockwork from the cellular level on up. Uh, and it wasn't really until the 1960s and 70s that these two parallel universes began to merge, which vastly expanded our understanding of sleep in people. You know, and then the third transformative mo moment to me was that realization that sleep health is not just a matter of personal physiology or neuropsychology, you know, but that it really is a matter of public health. Ken, in our, in our last uh, set of minutes here, uh, as you pointed out, there's so much sleep research now ongoing and our understanding of it continues to grow. How do you see the future uh, moving when it comes to sleep science from what you're seeing and what that may mean for us in the future. So to me, some of the most interesting developments involve sleep, uh, sorry, involve sleep's effect on memory and learning. Um, and this gets into things like research into Alzheimer's disease, and research into other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, which seem to be uh, have sleep problems as a component. And so scientists are discovering ways in which uh, the brain literally does house cleaning during the night. Your, your glial cells, as they're called, sweep out toxic uh, substances that build up over the course of the day at night. And if that goes wrong, that increases your danger of Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Uh, there, you know, and and Parkinson's disease is also uh, has a sleep component uh, in that you start getting this bizarre syndrome in many people called REM sleep behavior disorder, in which people uh, act out their dreams. You know, normally we're paralyzed during REM sleep to keep us from doing that, and people flail and lash out and it can actually injure or even kill their bed partners. All this reveals stuff about, about the neurobiology of the brain. And if we can attack some of the problems that are happening during sleep, there's actually the prospect of improving outcomes or preventing Alzheimer's, of nipping things like Parkinson's disease in the bud. If we can develop tests for how our sleep uh, behaviors 
uh, reveal what's going on in those processes, and then treatments, which may be actual sleep treatments, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, where you uh, where you apply a, a weak magnetic pulse to the brain during certain sleep stages, which might help people sleep more deeply and might help fend off some of those problems, or ways of treating people pharmaceutically if you can detect early stages of Parkinson's from their uh, sleep behaviors, you can start administering stuff to protect uh, their their uh, their brain cells before any of the bad stuff happens. That to me is really exciting. Ken, uh, if you had to leave uh, a, a big point for our listeners out there with regards uh, to sleep, uh, what would that point be? What I learned from this book is that over a century of research has been building and building and building the case that sleep is absolutely central to our health, to our, our physical health, our, our cognitive health, and our, and our emotional health. Uh, and there are ways to make it better. And if you have any suspicion that you could benefit from those, look into it because it can really, uh, it can really not only transform your life in the present, but it can help you stay healthier longer. Ken, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, this is an amazing book. It is so fascinating. And to all of our listeners, this is a great read. You're going to love it. Uh, it's it's a topic you don't think a lot about, but believe me, it is uh, fascinating. Uh, thanks so much, Ken. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. We've been talking to author Kenneth Miller. He has a terrific new book called Mapping the Darkness, the visionary scientist who unlocked the mysteries of sleep. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Lefkin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at healthwjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.